We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm Anika, and I'm here with my co-host, B, and we'll be talking to Zoe Quartzi, who is a professor of computational cognitive neuroscience at the University of Cambridge and is also the Turing University lead there. Hi, everyone. Um, we're very interested to have here Professor Zoe um, because a team that was led by her has developed machine learning tools that can detect dementia in patients at a very early stage. So welcome to the podcast. Great, thank you. Um, nice to be here and nice to meet you all. So um, Zoe, can you tell us about some of the current problems with diagnosing and treating dementia? Yes, so dementia is really um, a very disabilitating um, uh, disorder. Many, many families, there are no families that have not touched um, by it these days. Um, and uh, the main problem is really that every patient is different. They have a different history. Uh, they uh, have um, a, a different background in terms of uh, health and in terms of uh, lifestyle. Uh, and dementia um, starts uh, about 10 to 15 years before we see any symptoms. So uh, the diagnosis currently, uh, based on the tools we have, uh, is actually uh, quite late, uh, not early enough uh, to be able to intervene uh, successfully in most cases. And so the, the fact that we can only diagnose quite late uh, and with quite invasive tools um, and the fact that the symptoms have started earlier and uh, they are very heterogeneous makes the diagnosis and the detection of the disease a quite challenging uh, problem. So that's really interesting because that means that basically when it's detected, it's already too late because it had 10 to 15 years to activate. So how does this tool, this AI, help the diagnosis? Yeah, so the, the aim is really to go as early as possible to make the diagnosis, uh, maybe even before symptoms occur and to make it as precise as possible, but also to make it as comfortable as possible for patients. Um, currently, uh, the way that dementia is diagnosed is initially um, uh, uh, people will have, patients will have uh, some symptoms and, and they will go to their GP. Uh, they'll have some assessment, first assessment, then uh, possibly refer to a memory clinic to have further assessments. Uh, and then uh, a course of um, uh, rather invasive um, uh, measurements uh, and assessments um, uh, start. So first I'll have an MRI, uh, which actually it's, it's um, quite simple and, and pretty straightforward. Uh, but then if this is not diagnostic enough, then they will have more invasive scans, for example, a PET scan that uh, requires radioactive activity, and then they'll have potentially lumbar punctures. This is a quite long trajectory of uh, sometimes years before there is a precise diagnosis. Now, during this period, people usually will experience more symptoms, and these symptoms will get worse because of anxiety. Um, so uh, when somebody is diagnosed with dementia, given that 
we uh, know that there are no disease-modifying treatments at this point, uh, although a lot of progress uh, is currently being made. Um, uh, people will be sent home uh, with a potential diagnosis, uh, but not much that uh, can be done. And therefore, anxiety will increase actually their symptoms because once you start in getting anxious, uh, uh, the, your cognitive abilities um, will, will um, start um, being um, impaired. So you, you'll be more anxious, you'll sleep less well, um, uh, you'll, you'll maybe not eat very well, and therefore then you can't remember, you're more confused. Um, so a very difficult trajectory. Uh, so what we are trying to do with the tool that we built um, is uh, detect dementia from very basic assessments. Um, so this tool, uh, thanks to you know thousands of patients that have given their data, has been built on uh, a lot of cases of patients uh, across uh, different countries and has seen a lot of uh, types of data. So some basic cognitive assessments, some brain scans, but also a lot of what we call biomarkers. And these are recorded with uh, much more invasive uh, technologies and, and, and medical tools. Now, because the model is trained uh, uh, and because it has had all of this vast experience and rich experience from many patients, Currently, when a new patient comes in, we don't require all of this data. What we require is one brain scan, which is the least invasive brain measurement that we can take. And that's a, a structural scan that looks just at the structures of the brain and how well defined they are at any stage of the disease. And that's typically about five to 10 minutes um, in, in a uh, basic MRI scanner in a hospital. And then uh, the model will look at these scans and because uh, it has learned from all of these other patients to learn associations between these scans and some cognitive assessments that all the patients would have had, would have had after being referred to a memory clinic, uh, the model can make an initial prediction about the patient and can tell us uh, whether this patient um, uh, is uh, showing um, uh, signs and risk of dementia and how quickly potentially they are moving down the trajectory uh, of dementia pathology. So it makes the, the diagnosis much faster, earlier uh, at, the, at the disease stages and in a more precise way. I feel like our entire generations just got a bit depressed with the idea that anxiety makes it worse. Because we we all went, oh no, <laughs> this is terrible for all of us. Um, I have I have a question. I don't know if this is going to be very out of it, but you've mentioned that you have a very large data set that you've taken this from. Did you manage to make this data set as diverse as possible? Because we've had a lot of issues in AI where the data sets are very biased towards one group of people. This is, this is really a big challenge. Um, and we are kind of lucky enough now to have data sets that, are, um, that can be accessed. Um, but we're still very early days. So the data set that we worked on uh, is a data set from the US and it comes from uh, people scanned at different sites in the US, four different sites. So some diversity, but uh, really what we need to be looking here is more population diversity. And, and that uh, really has not been done. We have tested this tool in the UK and we have tested it in research studies. And, and now we are testing it in clinical uh, populations. Uh, 
Uh, and we are building with the touring uh, collaborations, uh, for example, in, in Australia and in Singapore to start really increasing the amount of data, but also the diversity in this data. So this is really, really key. Um, we are doing together with the touring. We have a collaborative, a large um, scale collaborative program with the Alzheimer's Research UK the Eden Initiative, where we are recruiting cohorts uh, from across the globe uh, to mine the data, but also even more excitingly to collect uh, lots of digital data from wearable technologies so that we can go even less invasive um, uh, in terms of collecting data uh, from our everyday interactions in, our, in the environment and, and much earlier because uh, data from wearable technologies can give us indication about changes that are happening in how people um, uh, sleep, in how they walk, you know, how they navigate their environments, um, how they breathe. And this could be really uh, important data if we see a change in this data to um, couple with uh, scans, for example, brain scans, uh, to start diagnosing the disease as early as possible, but also with a diversity of really a large population across the globe. Um, and then the least invasive our methods, the more kind of, you know, if you want mobile and wearable type of methods we can use, the more we will be able to, to um, really develop tools for uh, the, the, the global population. I always say that dementia is a global problem, so we really need global solutions and therefore we need, we need algorithms that um, will, will look at data from people across the globe. It's really positive to hear. Thank you. I did have a question on other tools that are in existence. How does this tool, how is it separate? How is it different from other tools in existence? It's really exciting to see that there are lots of people interested in this problem. And, and it's really exciting to see that, you know, people coming now with uh, a machine learning expertise, uh, they're working together with biologists and neuroscientists to really develop tools. So there is more and more happening. Um, I think the difference is that most of the times uh, when we develop machine learning algorithms, we care a lot about their accuracy. And, and of course, you know, we are uh, kind of performance hungry. So we want to see our algorithms performing, you know, 98%. And the difference here is that we really built this tool to be um, biologically relevant and clinically relevant. So where we are going with this is really we want to see it being translated into clinical practice. So this is not if you want about how, what's the best accuracy that we can achieve. We do want the algorithms to be accurate, but primarily we want these algorithms to be interpretable. Um, and therefore, in this case, we have gone not for very deep algorithms, but kind of more shallow algorithms that we can interrogate them and understand why they make a prediction. And so that means the data that we put in the algorithms, then we can see if you want um, how they are kind of rank ordered in terms of their contribution uh, to the disease trajectory of each individual. So this is one one um, uh, uh, one aspect that is uh, is a little bit different uh, in terms of the, these algorithms are very interpretable um, and easy to interrogate. And and we believe that um, this is uh, really important for. Uh, clinicians to trust them, uh, because this is a big kind of a public health component. We, we really need our clinicians to feel comfortable with AI. Uh, we really need to be able to interrogate our tools uh, and, and trust them as these tools will be supporting them in their decision process. The, the other kind of, um, uh, uh, if you want, kind of unique thing uh, for, uh, about these algorithms is that they don't stop at the, uh, at the stage of classifying people and detecting the disease, but they look at individual trajectories. Because what we need to be able to um, do is to see how fast people progress towards dementia, or maybe not. 
so the first stage of the detection, we try to be as precise as possible to reduce uh, misdiagnosis because there's quite a lot of misdiagnosis given that people might be suffering from many other diseases, for example, cardiovascular disease or diabetes or even depression. And that shows up as cognitive problems that look like dementia. So be, moving kind of beyond this initial, if you want, class, classification of patients as um, having dementia or not, we look at their trajectories and we see how fast they move towards dementia. And this can make a big difference in clinical pathways. So um, although we don't have disease-modifying treatment, uh, we have interventions, for example, even lifestyle interventions that we can apply. And we need to know who are the patients that need the interventions now or later. And who are the patients that need hospitalization now or later? And so um, what the models allow, this model allows tell us, first of all, who are the patients that are stable, actually, and, and they will not potentially develop the disease. And, and these patients maybe need to be going into a completely different care pathway because they might have other uh, disorders that can be treated and cured. And therefore, their dementia symptoms will hopefully go away. Then what we, uh, the, 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 for patients where we see that there is um, risk for dementia, we can see whether they are moving slowly and therefore send them back in the community with some support or whether they are moving really rapidly towards dementia and therefore need immediate hospitalization. This is really important for the patients, but it's also really important for the NHS because currently we put people through many, many diagnostic tests because we, we don't have a good diagnosis to start with. That means a lot of funding, a lot of resources go to everybody and not to the people that really need it immediately. So with these models that give us this kind of trajectory, we can see uh, who are the people that need it urgently and we can tailor the resources to, towards them. Um, uh, so, and, the, and of course, you know, for people that um, uh, don't need immediate hospitalization, but they are early stages, uh, there's lots of recommendation for changing lifestyle factors that can really help and, and hopefully slow down the disease um, uh, for considerable um, uh, more healthy years. Um, so in that way, really, this the, the, the unique thing about these algorithms is that really they are um, interpretable, uh, increasing um, um, trustworthiness of, of uh, machine learning. Uh, they are also generalizable because they were built in research data, but now we see that they generalize in data from patients. Um, and, and they don't stop at simply classifying people. They are looking at their trajectories with the aim uh, to uh, have um, uh, uh, better um, uh, clinical pathways for individuals uh, and more personalized, really, um, uh, uh, diagnostic pathways and care pathways. That is really interesting how we can have AI to, to help all of this and to help the NHS, right? Which seems like such a, a big jump but it's not that big of a jump. Um, do you think this is the main reason why it's the this research has gained so much interest in like the normal media outside of science circles and everything? Yes, I, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I really hope that um, we, we can make, um, you know, more advanced steps uh, towards really translation into the clinic and, and, uh, translating really uh, uh, all our, all the work we do in the lab, which is very exciting, in, into really social good and 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 making a difference in the real world. Definitely, can this tool distinguish between different types of dementia? Yeah, so this is where we are going. This is the next step. We started with looking at Alzheimer's disease because we started with training the model on data from Alzheimer's patients. 
Um, uh, we um, are now looking at many more cohorts and uh, with the initiative that we are working with the Turing and Alzheimer's Research UK, uh, we will have uh, patients that have uh, many different disease subtypes. Um, and, and now we can tailor the algorithms to identify actually which are the best tools and data we need for, for, for optimizing our predictions for different disease subtypes. We know already from preclinical studies, different dementia subtypes may relate more, for example, to gray matter or white matter loss in the brain or uh, many different other biomarkers. And, and that's where now our, our work is going in terms of optimizing the tools to be able to reduce the misdiagnosis, make it more precise on an individual um, level. Um, uh, and, and therefore, then, uh, uh, again, care pathway and treatment pathways can be more precise. And this can have also a huge impact on clinical trials um, uh, because uh, we see that um, drug, drugs may not succeed, may not the clinical trials may not be successful, but that is potentially because we don't have good diagnostic tools. So the sample for the clinical trials is not well diagnosed, therefore, um, uh, uh, you, you might not be seeing really uh, a difference between your um, drug group and, and your placebo group, your control group, uh, because they are totally heterogeneous rather than because the drug doesn't have an effect. So better diagnosis is going to help the entire pipeline from the not just the diagnosis itself, but actually the even the trials, even the drug discovery itself. I guess, are you also considering genetic markers? In, in, in the patients, because I guess that's how you get the truly personalized diagnosis. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And this is really important also for disease subtypes. Getting gen genetic markers in, in dementia is actually um, uh, quite hard. Uh, there is dementia that is, uh, is very much kind of genetically fine, but we are making quite a lot of progress also in computational biology in terms of extracting polygenic risk scores that are very much uh, linked to different disease subtypes. And, and this information will also be incorporated. We are hoping to be working on, on, on our current projects, on looking, for example, in UK Biobank for uh, healthy populations uh, and, and this is kind of the next generation of algorithms where we are looking at models that they are, um, uh, they are semi-supervised or unsupervised and they'll allow us to uh, work with data from populations uh, that um, do not have a clinical diagnosis. But also by including genetic markers, we can make this diagnosis more precise. Um, and again, look at these individual trajectories when people are very healthy, because that's what we are interested in. You know, when people are in their 30s and 40s, uh, we can actually um, uh, identify their, their health trajectory. And then there is time for intervention. Um, and, and we also believe that if our diagnostics are precise, more precise, it will make a big difference in clinical trials um, in, in terms also of drugs, uh, that have the potential to work much earlier at the stage of the disease. But currently, when people are recruited in clinical trials, they might be at later stages and the drug effects might be compromised because of the severity of the disease. Um, so, yeah, really, yeah, diagnostics um, is key, as you said, for the whole um, uh, pipeline. Thank you, Zoe. I was curious to know, just from what you said, are there ways that people can get involved or can participate? Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's a really amazing work what you're doing. I'm sure they'd be willing to volunteer in any way they can. Yeah, no, uh, it's uh, it's really fantastic to see the interest from everybody. Um, when when the BBC picked up our work in, in the summer, uh, it was it was really so wonderful, so encouraging. Um, 
to see uh, uh, how many people um, uh, wrote to say, can they volunteer? And uh, yes, please, uh, uh, the, the um, Alzheimer's Research UK, the Alzheimer's Association, uh, the Joint Dementia Program, uh, I always advertise studies uh, where people can participate. And it's it's really, you know, we, we really need to work together to develop the data, to yeah, develop the algorithms. And, and it's really, you know, something that everybody can contribute immensely. And without the patient data, really, no matter how many algorithms we built, we won't be able to translate this to the clinical practice. Yeah, just get everyone to donate their brain scans. <laughs> that would be nice. Out of, you know, scientific curiosity, what's the most exciting result you've had so far with the, um, with the, the algorithms that you've developed? Yeah, so I think the most exciting result uh, for me was um, when we could predict um, in individuals that uh, very early in life uh, had no symptoms and we could predict uh, whether uh, they would remain stable and healthy or whether they are at risk for dementia. Um, and, and it's, it's really exciting, not because, um, uh, we, we're not interested in being able to diagnose patients better, but because this really has huge potential for the future. One could think that if we can build these tools, uh, and, and feed them with data that is not invasive, like, for example, digital data, data from, you know, a Fitbit, um, uh, it could really change, uh, the healthcare pathway the same way that we have, you know, a health check for cardiovascular disease. We could have a brain health check. And, and a lot of people then ask me, you know, but, but what would I know in my thirties or forties that I have dementia? This will increase, you know, that I'm at risk of dementia. This will increase my anxiety tremendously. And I always say, uh, you know, see, see it the other way, which is actually you have the opportunity to change a lot in your lifestyle. Um, and, and potentially these symptoms of dementia will never occur because, uh, you know, things sort of get delayed and delayed when, uh, lifestyle factors, uh, can really have an influence. And what we've seen from recent studies is actually that even pre-determined um, factors, one could say, like, for example, polygenic risk scores, can express themselves differently by interaction with lifestyle factors. So really for me, being able to diagnose or, or predict, actually, it's not diagnosis, it's more prediction uh, about health uh, pathways, um, uh, health trajectories, very early on in healthy individuals opens up, I think, a, a, a very a, a very new kind of um, uh, landscape, which is preventative medicine and, and really, um, you know, health checks for everybody. Um, uh, in this space, which I think could make a, a huge difference for um, so many people and, and families. So this this has been really the most exciting. It was um, uh, done uh, so far in a limited kind of scale because we only had uh, uh, typically our research studies target patients. Um, and, and so, uh, this was a study that targeted healthy individuals. Um, but, but now, you know, as I was saying, we do have UK Biobank and also with Alzheimer's Research UK, we are actually, uh, aiming, uh, to be able to develop these tools and then, uh, uh bring them into, um, uh, a general population, uh, and, and health checks. So very much before, uh, the disease, um, uh, appears in terms of symptoms. So in a way, it's, almost how DNA sequencing helped with preventing some types of cancer that were genetic. So you can do preventive and, and you can know about it so that you can do something about it before it's too late. I really like that idea as well, what you're saying, because of course, you know, our physical health is something that we pay a lot of attention to. And more recently, we've been looking more into mental health, but 
a brain health checkup is a fantastic idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, it can have, I think, um, a lot of value in terms of, as you say, we get busy around our 30s and 40s, right, running around and we ignore quite a lot of things that then will have an impact in later quality of life and well-being. Uh, because, you know, body and brain are really one thing. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, physical, physical symptoms, we can get them more, more easily in terms of pain and, and you can see the difference. But brain, we tend to just stress and ignore, don't we? Yes. If it doesn't stop us from working, then it's fine. Brain is fine. It will cope with it. You know, we'll, future us will deal with all of this. And <laughs> Well, I think that's pretty much probably the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Zoe. I was just going to ask if you wanted to say something, anything else that we didn't ask before we say goodbye. I think you asked everything, really. (laughs) To thank you for, um, yeah, having me here and really wonderful, um, you know, to to be able to talk about this. And and I think anybody, uh, the public and clinicians and and, um, machine learning experts, anybody can really help. Uh, it is very much a cross-disciplinary effort to to um, really deliver anything we can uh, that can resolve this, you know, huge societal challenge. Um, so, yeah, thank you for um, inviting me. Yeah, I think we're all looking forward to seeing the future of what this could bring and the future of what this research could and tool can develop into. Um, I was just curious to know as well, um, in terms of get people getting in touch with you, do you have, uh, are you on social media? How can people kind of get in touch if they'd like to know more? Yeah, well, I have to make a little confession. I'm not very good with social media because I can barely <laughs> cope with my inbox <laughs> and my email. So I hide a little bit. But very, very happy to take uh, emails and very happy to kind of direct people if they want to know more or uh, if they want to be involved in, in um, research studies or, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's really, it's really very rewarding and very encouraging, uh, for, um, all of the people involved in our teams, uh, because this is huge teamwork, uh, to see that, uh, this, you know, uh, is of interest and it has an impact um, to everybody. So, yeah, v- very happy to contact me. I have multiple email addresses, my Cambridge one, my Turing one, so I'm sure you can catch me anywhere. Um, but I have to hide from Twitter to get some work done. Okay, I was going to say I'll change the question, in fact, in that case. Could you tell us maybe some of the other organisations who are involved in this research project who perhaps people could get in touch with to know more about this kind of research? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I hope the touring will be one of the, the first. And, and yeah, and I'm really grateful for all of the support that I've had from, from the touring and, and, um, really fantastic that we can, uh, really contribute to this effort. Um, and, and then the University of Cambridge, um, uh, is the, the next kind of primary institute. Alzheimer's Research UK, we're working, uh, very closely, um, with them. Uh, as a as a charity, um, uh, very much interested in this space. The Eden Project, also the uh, Early Detection of Neurodegenerative Disease Project, um, uh, uh, which is uh, spearheaded uh, by um, uh, Alzheimer's Research UK and, and and supported also by the Gates Foundation. Uh, these are all um, uh, places where people can find more information and also get in contact uh, with various people working in, in the teams there. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for coming to the Cheering Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa-Gomez, Ed Kalstry, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. And the episodes are produced by Luca Lane. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. 
You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram.